do the bad guys really win? It seems like in Hollywood that you watch these movies and the bad guys are always winning and the good guys seem to lose, right? I mean, uh, I was going way back in time. I mean, Gordon Gecko in, in Wall Street, you know, it, like, that's a lousy movie. It just seems like the bad guys win. But in, in more recent times, how about, how about Rogue One? I mean, like, everybody gets killed off, right? And I wonder if at times as Christians, we wonder, do the bad guys really win? Now, I got two bad guys in the front row. Come and stand up right here. Just take a look at these bad guys right here. Dad, look at them. Are the bad guys going to win? All right, you girls can have a seat. Thank you. All right. So we are looking at Psalm 73 this morning. And I want to ask the question, why do the good guys seem to be losing? Why does bad stuff happen to the good people? Uh, and do they seem to get away with stuff? And, and why would God allow evil? They'll be back for second service. Yes. <laughs> Uh, why does God allow evil men to be prospering? And is there really any justice in the world? And I believe we've all asked those questions at some time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this scripture would come alive to us because these questions are questions that many of us have asked through the course of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's provide some context. We're in the study of the book of Psalms. We're in week number two, and this is the first of 12 psalms written by Asaph. Remember, we said there were different authors, and in fact, the next 10 are all written by him, from 73 to 83, as well as Psalm 50. He's a contemporary of David. He's a choir director, so to speak, and you'll, you can read about him in 1 Chronicles 6 and other passage. And if you want to find a parallel psalm to this one that's written by David, you'd read Psalm 37 because those parallel each other, both asking the same questions, do the bad guys seem to win? Let's just jump to it. Let's look at the predicament of Asaph. And if you want to take notes, here's some uh, a bulletin uh, notes for you to write on. Here it comes, Pre predicament of Asaph, verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So you see in these three verses a promise and a predicament. The promise is, it seems like he's saying that God's going to take care of Israel and by implication to those who are pure in heart. And so we know that God genuinely cares for us. There's no disputing that. However, the next couple of verses says there's a little problem. There's a big U-turn, isn't there? Asaph began to focus on the other side about what God wasn't doing for him, why he didn't feel that God was blessing him, and why is he blessing the nasty, the wicked, the evil, the proud, a.k.a. the mean dudes? Why is that happening? And more importantly, why aren't those of us who are righteous being rewarded? And he says, he says it doesn't seem like there's any consequences and so he falls into a trap that many of us fall into whenever, whenever you take the chance to compare your situation with anybody else's situation. Comparison leads to desperation, and you just don't want to do that. So what two things happened to him? He says he almost stumbled. He almost fell. He almost slipped. It's like his footing began to lose traction spiritually, morally, and maybe more importantly, how he was thinking mentally. It's like me on ice skates. 
That is a scary proposition. I spent 14 years in Minnesota trying to learn how to play hockey. That is not going to happen. In fact, I dreaded the all-night uh, uh, New Year's Eve party where we'd go out on a lake and play uh, broom hockey with the high school kids because I spent most of the night on my keister, if you know what I mean. I just could not keep my footing. And so that's what happened to him. He's buying into the lie. He gets sucked into appearances. And then the second thing is he envied. What's he envying? He's envying all the supposed wealth and prosperity and benefits of the bad guys. And that became kind of a lure. It was an attraction to him. And he began to think that that illusion was actually the reality. So he focused on their present, not what was going to happen to them in their future. And if we're honest with each other, there are things like that that cause us to stumble, to envy. And we wonder, Lord, why? Why can't you bless us? Why can't you bless? And if we're really honest, why can't you just bless me? I don't care about the rest of the world, but at least bless me. You know, your appointed righteous one on the earth here, right? We kind of want to just have it for ourselves. And so we whine a little bit, don't we? Now, he has reason to whine if there ever is a reason to whine. And I actually put the six reasons why he feels that in these next several verses. Now, I should probably just take off this shirt and put on, you know, put on the black shirt this morning you know, for the evildoers. So the evildoers are residing in my heart, but I'm going to cover them up for a little bit. Uh, but why does he, why is he so envious? All right? Well, let's look at it. First, we see the prosperity of the godless. You got to see what he's buying into. And the first thing is that he's buying into is they appear to be physically strong and healthy. Look at verse 4. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, that's an oxymoron. I don't know how you can be fat and sleek. I'm kind of a little confused by that because I'm thinking this is a new fitness plan that I could get into. <laughs> fat is the new you. Yeah, this is pretty cool. Uh, and actually, the NIV translates it healthy and strong. And I think literally what it says is they look great, they feel great, uh, they eat well. Remember, a lot of people are starving in those days, and so they're not malnutritioned. They're eating pretty well. And so that's how they can be the poster child for fitness. I, I, I read this and I think they have no problem posting selfies on Instagram because they're just looking fine, uh, which I won't be doing. And so why does God say about these? What does he say about that? Just remember these couple of verses. Jeremiah 9.23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. If you know what the world values, it's those things, brains, brawn, or beauty, and bucks. Brains, brawn, and bucks. That's what the world says is important, and that's what he's looking at. He says, how about a little bit for me? Or how about what God says when picking the next king of Israel and talking to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The problem is he's comparing. What's the second thing he's looking at? They live a problem-free existence. Look at verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like all the rest of mankind. In other words, he's saying they have no everyday struggles. 
Everything goes easy for them. There's no anxiety in their life. They don't appear to be phased like the rest of us mere mortals who have difficult situations. Um, they have everything you could possibly want. I think in modern day parlance, maybe, and maybe I'm not saying if you have so many things that you're the wicked evil ones, but this is what some of us might be envious of. They do have their own fitness coach. They have their new own nutritionist. They have an accountant to handle all their money. They have gardeners through their lawns. Uh, in a more practical world, they don't have weeds in their garden like I do, right? They don't uh, have to, uh, to take oil off their driveway after some moving van, you know, parked in your driveway and they left oil stains all over it and you can't get it out of your pavers, which, by the way, I, I experienced that <laughs> this week, this week. And so, you know how you get oil? I tried Coke. I tried everything you could do to get the oil out of the pavers. I had to go and buy a roofer's torch. This is a long thing that puts out like a thousand degrees of heat and you hook it up to a propane can and you're just like, and I just like burn the oil off my driveway. Now, it was like 107 on Friday and I thought maybe the sun would do it, but no. Uh, so uh, their, their cars actually, uh, you know, start and our, mine don't. Uh, kids do homework out being prompted. Those are the more kinds of things in our culture we're saying, yeah, how come this doesn't work for me? It always works for everybody else. Thirdly, he saw that they flaunt their position in life. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So pride seems to permeate their existence and as if they said something like that. Hey, look at me. I'm exempt from your kind of pain, buddy. I'm better than you are. I'm above all this. And it was like they kind of flaunted this whole position they had in life. And he's looking at them like, that's ridiculous. And if they don't get their own way, it says they use violence to solve their problems. Now, we know this is a false facade, but when you get into this mental kind of whirlwind where you're comparing your life with anybody else's, you're going to go down, down, down in a predictable way. Look at number four. He saw that they are self-indulgent and self-absorbed. Verse seven, their eyes swell out through their fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. I'm not sure bulging eyes is a, is a sign of prosperity, but apparently... What that means is they had a very exotic diet or they've had too much to drink. I'm guessing one of the two. And so uh, the NASB says their imaginations of their heart run riot. In other words, their conceited mind knows no boundaries. And I guess you could summarize this part of the section is they do whatever they want with whoever they want, whenever they want. And it's like he's saying, I've had enough of this. I've had enough of this. Now, we're sitting here awfully quiet because I'm not, I don't think I'm missing my point when I look at all of us and there are times when we're said, I've had enough of this. I look at what's going on in the world and there just doesn't seem justice. There seems like God's letting stuff go by and why isn't he stepping in and solving this? And we still have world hunger. We don't have world peace and on and on and on. And it's very easy for us to get impatient with God and believe that somehow he's fallen asleep at the wheel. Look at the fifth thing. They speak with contempt about everyone. You know, I thought, that's just the description of any junior high, you know, class in today's <laughs> culture. No offense, junior hires, but sometimes junior hires, man, they, the thing I love about junior high is they say exactly what they're thinking. No filter, just whoop, out it comes. 
So they scoff, just messing with you, just because you're here, I had to say that. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. So in their hearts, they kind of think they're untouchable. They are above the law. And they're not above threatening others. They're bullies. Literally, that word strut means they, their mouth parades their vanity like a peacock. And it's a tale of woe, isn't it? I mean, I thought this would be a great time to write a country song right now. You could take this context and look at all the woes that he's, he's listing here. Number six, they even call out God. They, the arrogance of these guys, they call out God. Look at verses 10 through 12. Therefore, his people turn, turn back to them, meaning the wicked. They see what they're doing. Let's go with the, these guys and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I didn't put it on the screen, but just write this verse down. Psalm 14.1, fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's the essence of number six. They even call out God. It caused some of Israel to reject God and look at the wicked's prosperity and see that is their model for success. These guys could do no wrong, they thought. In essence, it caused him to doubt. Does God really know what he's doing? In fact, this is the, where you see in the scriptures where when someone who's challenging God, one way is they go after God's attributes to say he's not in charge. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know all. And it's a challenge to his attribute of omniscience, meaning God is all-knowing. You know the three omnis, right? Omniscience, he's all-knowing. Omnipresent, he's all-present. And he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Those three attributes are wrapped together, and they're challenging the fact that God doesn't know what, he, that, what we know, right? And so modern-day skeptics and heretics, the modern atheists would come after God in this section. So they're defying God to do something about it. And we've been seeing Satan do that game plan for millennia, right? First time it happens in the garden, right? Satan's in the garden. Is God really good? Did he really say that? Come on, take a bite. It's going to be fine. God's just worried because if you eat this, you're going to be like him. Then fast forward to the New Testament. What does Satan do in the temptation with Jesus? Same thing. Hey, just turn these stones to, to bread. It's no big deal. Throw yourself down. God will catch you. And so always kind of calling God out. It reminds me, I've mentioned this before, of the five I wills of Satan in Isaiah 14. If you've never read this, this is the great cosmic battle between Lucifer and God before the beginning of time. And what got Lucifer and a third of the angels thrown out of heaven? This passage describes it. Let me read it for you from Isaiah 14, verses 13 through 15. Watch every time the words I will are used. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. That's all the appearance. Apparently, Lucifer's ascension ended not in ascending, but descending. He went from being the CEO of the Angelicos to becoming the chief bottle washer of hell. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before a fall. But his summary of that whole section is, hey, they're worry-free and they're getting richer by the second. And so, not only does he paint the picture of what the, the wicked appear to be getting... But he then paints the story of, what, uh, of the, un, the pain of the ungodly. And this, 
folks, if you don't hear anything else I say, mark these three things down because it's the same three lies we believe when we compare our situations to anybody else, especially those who seem to be doing, quote, better than us. In fact, these three lies we believe about our circumstances or our experiences really begin to cloud our thinking with doubt and fear. And when things don't go our way, it's very easy to fall into these three lies. Let's look at them together. Lie number one, I lived a life of integrity for no purpose. And he's challenging God's plan. We see that in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. And what he's actually saying is, why didn't I take some shortcuts like these other guys? Now, I asked myself that question, what shortcuts could I have taken in my life? I've lived almost, I've lived 61 years. And this coming uh, Saturday, I will be married for 39 years of those years to my lovely wife, who's always in the fifth row smiling and laughs at all my jokes. Fantastic. I lived a life of integrity for no purpose. He's challenging God's plan. What are, some of the, what are some of the shortcuts we could have taken in life? Like my buddies, when they were six and they stole candy from the 7-Eleven, they never got caught. They were stuffing their pants with Snickers bars and or maybe I would listen in, maybe we could have listened in to more gossip in the locker room and, you know, heard about all the exploits of whatever happened on that weekend. Other people were cheating on our final in Spanish that year. The only B I got in my junior year of high school was in Spanish because half the class was cheating on the final. Now, I'm not saying, well, it's me. I'm just saying all of us have temptation to cut corners, to cheat to be like the other guys. Here's one that high school and college students I think wrestle with today a lot and have, we, all, all people have. I'm gonna save myself to marriage. I'm gonna wait so I'm pure. I'm gonna be a virgin when I get married. You know, I, 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 um, I do a ton of counseling and um, you know, my wife and I, she's one of the very few people I ever dated, right? Uh, this is, I got a face for radio, you know, this is what we're talking about, you know? So, um, I think I've told you about that. You know, I used to worry about my nose, like, how long is my nose? Like, I got a four-finger nose. That's just like, dude, Jimmy Durant, he has nothing on me. But I can tell you this, and I say it without shame. We waited. We waited. It's the best decision I've ever made in my life. You know Why? Because I knew someday I'd be standing in front of a bunch of these kids and saying, hey, you guys should wait. Wait to have sex till you get married. And they'd go, well, did you wait, Pastor John? Well, no, I didn't, but I mean, you should wait, right? I knew I'd be speaking to hundreds of high school kids throughout the last 39 years of ministry. And I wanted with integrity to say. Now, let me just tell you, it doesn't mean it was easy. Well, that's another day that you've got to come to our marriage retreat. Then we tell the real story of our courtship. <laughs> But see, we can make compromises like that every day in our lives. And one of the sad things is, is once you've compromised once, it's easy to make a second compromise and a third in a different area and in a fourth area. But the worst part of compromising is when you beat yourself up, and even though God's forgiven you for that mistake, that sin, that compromise, and you can never let go of it. 
And I'm telling you today, this message isn't about guilt. It's always about grace. But those are some of the things where he looks and says, I lived a life of integrity for no purpose. And you can go on and on and on and look for ways you could compromise. And see, you wonder if he's kind of secretly wondering, should I just chuck it all? Is this Christian life really worth it? That's the first lie. Look at the second lie. Number two, my suffering and trials aren't worth it. He's questioning God's protection. Look at verses 14 and 15. For all day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, yes, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What you see here is the pity party is in full bloom. And he's putting God's goodness on trial, isn't he? And he's just saying, do I do all this just to get punished and the bad guys get rewarded? Does this sound any familiar to you to anything in the New Testament? A little parable about two sons in Luke chapter 15. Does this at all ring true in terms of the older son? Listen to what he says in Luke 15:9. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. He's saying, man, you didn't even have a burger bash for me and now all these guys are eating at uh, Ruth Chris. My trial's not worth it. He's questioning God's protection. Lie number three. This is impossible to figure out. This is impossible to figure out. He's doubting God's providence. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You see, tough questions want, uh, you know, force us or make us think that we should just give up and quit. We say, this is too complicated to figure out. No, that's why we need the best minds in Christendom to think through philosophically the answers to hard questions, why there is evil and suffering in the world, why the bad guys don't really end, win in the end. And so, we feel this weightiness uh, of his thoughts and his temptation to rationalize here. And you can see he just, he wants to throw his hands up because he's doubting God's providence until he figured something out. So we spend 16 verses in here describing the problem, why he feels what he feels, the three lies that we all buy into when we compare ourselves with those who are better off and who especially, you know, kind of offer the other side of Christianity. And then he turns the corner. Thank goodness. We see the preeminence of God in verses 17 to 20. For Asaph to see clearly, he had to get away and get alone with God because he is being blinded by his circumstances. Look at verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Do you know why we spend hundreds of dollars getting these kids to Hume Lake? Because it's a time for them to get away from everything in, in this culture and get alone with God to get away from social media, to get away from TV, to get away from distractions, to, no, no, no offense, mom and dad, to get away from you a little bit. They love you, but they need a little space, right? And then they can hear God clearly about what God's calling on their life is going to be. I'm a huge fan that there may be more accomplished spiritually in the one week that they're just going to spend 
than in 52 weeks of everything else in their life. And so that's what Asa had to get away. He had to get to, there was no Hume Lake to get to. He had to go to Mount Hermon. Uh, check it out, it's in Israel. <laughs> there are two things God's going to do according to this. The truth is that God doesn't let the bad guys get away with this forever. They're going to, two things are going to happen to them. Look at verse 18 and then verse 19. In verse 18, they're going to fall mightily. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. We just don't buy it. We, we don't believe it, but that's going to happen. They're going to fall mightily, and then they're going to fail miserably. Fall mightily, fail miserably. Look at verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears, like a dream when one awakens, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Their failure is going to be highlighted by a nightmare that will never go away, ultimately, for them. They're going to experience in dealing with God directly. The problem is he doesn't deal with those guys in our time frame, right? David says that throughout the Psalms. They're called the imprecatory Psalms. Slay the evildoers. And, and he just goes off. And I told you last week, remember, this is a, a plea for, for vengeance. But what's happening here is we're uncomfortable with the speed or lack thereof in which God works in the lives of other people who He should be correcting, fixing, putting back together. Because, of course, we don't need any of that, do we? Like, I, we have got it together. God shouldn't be really dealing with us. He should be dealing with you and you and you and you, right? Now, you would never say that. We just think it, don't we? And so, they're going to fall mightily. They're going to fail miserably. But just because he isn't dealing with them in our time frame doesn't mean he's fallen asleep at the wheel. When he chooses to act, he's going to be waking a lot of people up. It will be a wake-up call. And it will be a wake-up call to his holiness, to his justice, to his ability to make a difference for all of eternity. So then we see the pursuit of God. And how God pursues us just like He pursued Asaph. And this is, this, if you didn't write any, besides the three lies, then write these four things down. Because this, take this one to the bank, the pursuit of God. First of all are these two things. God stood by him despite his defiance. Look at verses 21 and 23. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, talking about his relationship to God. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. God didn't abandon Asaph, and he won't abandon us when we're bitter, when we're ignorant, when we're angry. God's got big shoulders. He can handle it. And so maybe this morning we have to acknowledge that maybe it's time that we face God with some of those feelings about how we feel about our circumstances in life. I am never going to minimize the tragedy of what any of you have experienced in this room. Some of you have been through a horrendous time in your life, through a failed marriage that you didn't want the divorce and, and it just ended badly. Some of you have cared for loved ones who have died in, in a lot of pain as they aged. Some of you have dealt with 
employment situations that would drive a man crazy or a woman crazy with the kinds of bosses that you've had to put up with, and they just get away with it, and they keep getting promoted, and, and you keep like, what? I'm honest, and, and this, and he get, he's now my boss? That backstabbing guy who, who stole my account? I mean, pick your story, but I think many times we are like that child who's four years old and mom's got his hand and he wants to run across the street to the park, but there's a oncoming traffic and as he's squirming to get away, she's holding on even tighter, not because she wants to keep him from having fun in the park, but she sees the oncoming truck and by holding his hand, he doesn't die and mom saves the day. By the way, you know what every reoccurring theme is on every grandparent's thoughts when we're watching the grandkids is these kids cannot die on my watch, right? I have to send them home alive back to their parents. Do I hear an amen from any grandparents? Yes, yes. And so when that little four-and-a-half-year-old's squirming out of my little sweaty hand and he's trying to get to the park and, no, hang on, but he wants to play and he's looking back like, why are you not letting me have fun? We look at God that way. Why aren't you letting me have fun? He goes, I'm holding your hand because I'm going to save your life. Maybe this morning we got to realize him holding your hand is the one thing that's kept you from the pit of despair. Because he's never going to let go of you. He's never going to let go of you. And so the perception... Of a, uh, or the pursuit of God also includes this. God guided him despite his doubt. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Isn't that wonderful? He was watching over him his whole life. God is the ultimate guardian angel, isn't he? And after we die, our ultimate destination is heaven. And so he's using heaven and, and glory synonymously. So now, as we conclude the last few verses, what's the perception of Asaph? Now, let me again provide some context before we look at these, these final things. It's as if he comes to his senses. It's like he's been thinking in such a way that his mind is a fog, and he's wondering, how does this all going to play out, Right? And the problem is we can't always see how it plays out, so it fuels the questions, it, it adds to the doubt, and so Asaph reminds us again of the younger son in the prodigal story. It says, when he came to his senses, then he came home. And so Asaph lists these five things that he now realizes about God. And these are the five things you've got to kind of come to grips with if you're ever going to deal with envying the bad guys. Number one, God should be our ultimate desire. Verse 25, God should be our ultimate desire. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You see, the more we desire Him, the less we're going to be distracted by the other things that unhinge us, that unhinge us. What do you want most out of your life? Do you find it in God and your relationship with Him, or do you find it in, in all the other things? You know, I'm a golfer, and um, it, I like to golf. There's no doubt about it. I, I like to score well. I like to keep the ball in bounds. 
I like to come home with more golf balls than I started with, all those things. But there is nothing better on, on the golf course than when you're playing with some really good players and you start a little slow and they have this look like, oh, I'm stuck with that dude. Ugh. Why do we let him play with us, right? And then your game turns around and all of a sudden you start making birdies, par, birdie, birdie, par. That's in my dreams. It's never really happened, but... Um, <laughs> Actually, it did happen recently, but we, we don't have to share. Um, but the ultimate thing is, when I'm playing golf, that's like the most important thing. I, I just want to play. I want to have fun. I want, I want to do well. But I'll tell you what really makes a difference in my life is when I'm up early, early in the morning. Now, by the way, early is a relative term. If you ask my wife what early is, that's somewhere around four. I'm a more mere moral, like six is early for me. And I'm up between 5.30 or 6, I'm alone with a cup of coffee, and I'm listening to the Lord first. I open my Bible, and I just spend some time with Him. It kind of sets my day for the whole rest of the day. And when that doesn't happen, it seems like everything else in my life, I'm just rushing, and I'm squeezing things in, and, I'm, and things don't go as planned. But I can tell you, when I start the day with Him, and I reaffirm, God, you are my ultimate reason for existence. My day just goes a lot better. Secondly, here's what we have to realize about God. God never fails. You can take that to the bank. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God never fails. This is true when everything else around you is failing. He's not going to fail, including our own human weaknesses. He's our strength. He's our rock. He's our sustenance. Even when we're weak, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we're only strong because he's strong. Thirdly, we realize that God will bring justice to the wicked. God will bring justice to the wicked. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. This is a sobering reality, but there, is, there are consequences to those who live a life who aren't faithful to God. He is going to judge them, and it involves eternal separation from His love and mercy. It's as if the light goes on, he's reminded that God has worked historically. That's why we say Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Remind yourselves of that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll direct your paths. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Remember, he's historically taken care of you. He's going to do it again. Even when you're scared to death, you're going to lose your house. Maybe you did lose a house, and it got foreclosed, and you lost a job. Your bank account was on empty, and you thought you were going to have to be on food stamps, and you're, you're, you're evicted. You're homeless. By the way, you think that doesn't happen? It happens in this church. Every week, almost, I deal with someone who's our deacon funds helps. And by the way, thank you for giving to that fund, because it helps literally dozens of people every year. Remember, he's, he hasn't lost track of you. He just has a longer point of view than we do. Number four, God is our ultimate safe house, verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. 
You know those movies where you, know, you got to go to a safe house because the bad guys are chasing you and they'll never find you here. But then, of course, they find the safe house and someone had a leak in, in the CIA and now you're running to your next safe house. You know the good thing about God is his safe house, you're not going to get found by the bad guys. It is the ultimate safe house. It is the ultimate refuge. It is the place where you can exhale, take a deep breath and say, God's good. The ultimate safe house is heaven, isn't it? And our relationship with God works best when we cling to Him, cling to Him. Because when we maximize His proximity, it helps us when we're mired in our problems. He's our refuge. Write this one down, Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Now, think about this. If He had done all this in the first place, we wouldn't have to spend the first 20 verses setting all this up. And then lastly, God is worthy of our praise, verses 28, end of verse 28, that I may tell of all your works, that I may tell of all your works. The result is if we live in light of eternity the way God has, has set us up to think properly, we'll be able to speak boldly about what God's done in spite of our circumstances. Here's the good news as Chad comes up. God is still on the throne. He is still on top of His game. He is worth putting our trust in. He is the priority of our lives. And my question is, do you believe it? Do you want to believe that, or do you want to believe the three lies we talked about? Do you want to believe the lies, or do you want to believe the truth? And I think in the end, let's not beat ourselves up today because there have been plenty of times where we've gone through life, there's something that's happened that's kind of like being thrown off a horse. And it's at the time when we're laying on the ground that we have to say, am I going to get back on that horse again? Am I going to get back? Maybe it's a motorcycle for you guys, right? Whatever it is, whatever that life event that threw you for a loop. And the good news, friends, is that the bad guys don't win. God wins. He always has. He always will. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. In our heart of hearts today, we know we need you. We know there are times that we've doubted you, maybe even defied you. But Lord, today we praise you because you are the God of our salvation. You are our refuge. You are our strength. You are the one we turn to in times of need. You're the one who holds our hand tightly and you won't let us go. And so we thank you for that protection and for that provision. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.